You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. It's Mr. Jeff McLaudge. There goes that tide. There it goes. I'm like, it's the Bay of Fundy. The Bay of Fundy has the the largest tide change in the world. It's like something like 16 feet. Well, there goes my trivia question for today, son of a bitch. Really? No, of course not. (laughs) Damn. I thought for sure I was going to be one in a row for pre-cognosticating the title of the trivia question. No, no, no. Today's trivia question bounces back to last week's trivia question. Oh, I made that's a promise, right. and I'm, I'm keeping up with it. Nothing to do with uh, the Bay of Fundy, then. It's a shame. No. So keeping up with uh, last week's conversation, I had made mention that I had to go get my eyes examined and all that, yeah. and then I have astigmatism, so my glasses came in. Ah, and how yep. is life with your new focusable eyes, Mr. Bill? I yeah, I wear glasses now. What happened was I I I got to the eye place and they give me my glasses. I put them on. I was like, yeah, this isn't doing anything. I I see better without them. And they're like, well, sometimes it takes a little while for your eyes to adjust. Give it twenty four hours. I gave it forty eight hours, and my eyes did not adjust. So I go back, and they're like, well, we'll give you another examination. They give me an examination, and I got a completely different prescription than I did the first time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know what they did the first time around or or whatever. I think they just, like, pulled bingo numbers or, or whatever it was. But did, did the guy who did your examination the first time, did he, like, have to help you with a white stick to get to the chair? Was he wearing his own special, like, very dark glasses <laughs> as he did the exam on you? No, but the second guy was a lot more thorough, I would say. And he showed me, like a topographical map of my eye and showed me the mm-hmm. astigmatism and yeah, all that. Yeah. And he was actually pretty impressed with how bad the astigmatism was considering I never had eye problems before. Astigmatisms right. go on a scale of counting by quarters. It goes from zero to 4.0. And okay. my astigmatism is like right at the halfway mark. It's like 1.75. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, it's pretty bad for something that just I didn't have six months ago, you know? Right, right, right. So I got the new glasses. They're okay. Uh, they work. They work. I can I can see stuff now. It's uh, like you said to me, like, you know, try watching a movie. You're like, wow, that's what it looks like, huh? Um, <laughs> yep. Play video game, too. Yeah. I actually take them off to play video games because they're progressive lenses. Yeah. Uh, so they get the readers down at the bottom and the distance up at the top. Right. And... I take them off and I put on just regular reading glasses whenever I'm doing certain things. Like right now, I'm just wearing the readers because right. I have to look at my computer screen and to to be able to see it with my glasses, my prescription glasses on, I have to tilt my head backwards. And uh-huh. I'm a programmer for a living, dude. I can't do that. I'm going to go home with like scoliosis or something. <laughs> 
Yeah, your head becomes like at the top of a Pez dispenser after a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's certain things I still wear the readers for, and mm-hmm. uh, this being one of them. And playing video games, I have a video game like set up in my cellar. It's a huge projection screen, so it's like a hundred inch screen, and I have this like, it's a beanbag chair, but it kind of looks like a really large baked potato that I yeah. sit in. And because of the angle of my head when I'm playing video games, wearing glasses doesn't do me any good. So I no. just I just play, I go bare ass, so to speak, when I'm uh, commando, as they say. Yeah, yeah, I go face commando whenever I'm uh, playing video <laughs> games. Face commando. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I still don't think of myself as somebody that wears glasses, but I guess I'm gonna have to get used to that. Yeah, every time you look in the mirror, you be like, oh, who's that guy? Yeah, yeah. I've been wearing them since I was nine, so. It's old hat to me. Right. In fact, I lay in bed and I dream. Maybe my prescription will finally stabilize and I can go spend a ton of money to get LASIK. Just enough so that my eyes can start to degrade and I need close-up eyeball glasses. This dude I know, he wore glasses his entire life and he got the LASIK surgery, but he needs reading glasses for up-close yeah. stuff. Yeah, that um, would, that's kind of what would happen with me. Yep. I'm going to end up being like my father. My father wore glasses my you know my entire life. I'm sure he didn't wear them his entire life, but he wore glasses my entire life. But you can't find pictures of him wearing glasses. He would always take them off for pictures. So I could see myself doing that. I sort of like the – I don't know if this will be something that you notice, but when I get ready to go to bed at night and – you know, take off my glasses and it sort of, it's like turning off, it's like turning off the lights. It's like turning off the sensors. Like I can't see, I can't, I'm like almost legally blind without my glasses on. So oh, no. everything, I see fi- everything turns into a giant blob. No, I see fine without my glasses. It's just that I got really, I got double vision in my left eye and without the glasses, my right eye compensates for it anyway. Right. What's weird is when I take off the glasses, my left eye decides to go off on its own little adventures because it's like, wait, I can't see. I can't see. <laughs> well, I know I know. for me it's like part of getting ready to go to sleep. My brain says like, oh, I can't see anything now. It's time to go to sleep, and I fall right <laughs> to sleep. So it makes it work for me. All right. Well, before you fall asleep while we're doing the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you, Jeff. Oh, I think uh, yeah, I saw so- that phrase on a pin somewhere. Yeah. So last week we were talking about this country didn't have a national anthem until like 1930 sometime. Right. Now we had a lot of placeholders for the national anthem, my country tis of thee being one. But one of the first uses for the national anthem was another song. It was used for George Washington's inauguration and it was used for presidential inaugurations for a long period of time. What was the name of that song, and where can you find that song now? Because they did repurpose it. I can't. I don't know the name of the song specifically, but isn't it the same song that was used as the Monty Python's Flying Circus theme song? I don't know. I will look that up, and you can. We'll figure it out at the end of the show. All right. All right. So, so I'm answering your question with a question. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it! That was my question. Turn your question for next week. <laughs> All right, so this is the week beginning, December the 12th, and it is indeed. Uh, why don't you start? All right, December the 12th, 1957, <laughs> in Portland, Oregon, a disc jockey named Al Pretty is fired for playing Elvis Presley's version of White Christmas. The station management said in his firing letter, it's not the spirit we associate with Christmas. So, consider it's 1957, and Elvis yeah. is, at this point, the sexiest man in American history. 
Right, right, right. You know, just being near him causes women to spontaneously ovulate and become fertile. Yeah, until they reach a certain age. At that point, they're like clutching their pearls and gasping for breath. Yeah. Right. So I'm sure they thought like, my God, him singing this crotchety old Irving Berlin song is going to throw the town into panic. Mm. So they fired out pretty. But I guess, you know, I went back and listened to this version of White Christmas, which is not one of my favorite Christmas songs anyway, by Elvis. And my first thought was like, it's pretty much uh, as White Christmassy as you can get. It's, it's And it's pretty Elvisy too, yeah. It's, it's pretty Elvisy, yeah. It would sound the same if it was Perry Como. It would sound the same if it was Mitch Miller. I don't think it would have sounded any different from any crooner. Right. But because it was Elvis Presley and his, you know, gyrational hips, it was not okay to play it on the radio. Yeah, it's like Elvis Presley in, what was it, 1957, right. was, you know, kind of like how, I don't want to say our generation because it was like maybe a little bit after our generation, but like, you remember how everybody would lose their minds over Marilyn Manson? They were like, yeah, <gasps> you know, everything the guy did. That's how Elvis was kind of. They they all thought that Elvis was going to lead all their kids into yeah, you into know, the da- oh, damnation forever. Yeah, yes. But uh, it was only uh, a couple of years later where Elvis wreaked his revenge like Godzilla coming <laughs> out of the ocean whenever he unleashed uh, Blue Christmas upon the world. Oh, yes. you don't like you don't like my uh, White Christmas. Well, how about we get uh, some uh, uh, ooh hoos in the background over here? Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to do no more Irving Berlin. Berlin <laughs> is in Germany. I want to do my own thing. I call this one Blue Christmas. And I seem to remember you picking that song for a worst song, worst Christmas I, song ever on a special episode. I have. I reserve. A special hatred for Blue Christmas to the point where actually I might actually put Elvis Presley's White Christmas on a Christmas playlist this year because it's so inoffensive. (laughs) But Blue Christmas will bring out the Hulk in me. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Moving on to December the 13th. Not really a trivia question, but let me see what I can do for you over here. December the 13th, 1975. It says over here for the first time, but I mean, that's when Saturday Night Live started with Saturday Night Live. But Saturday Night Live is a live show, hence hence the name. And But they used a time delay on this one particular episode of 1975 because a certain person was hosting said show. Want to take a stab in the dark on who this host was? Gosh, who could it possibly have been in 1975 that they were mm. concerned? Mm. I scratched my chin thoughtfully. That's what that sound is. Yep. It was very it was, obviously that was the first time Richard Pryor hosted. I think it was the only time he hosted that show. Yeah, Richard Pryor was on the show. There's a lot of uh, really funny skits. I mean, Richard Pryor was a very funny guy. And, yes. And um, there's a very funny but of its time sketch with him and Chevy Chase doing Word Association. You guys can look that up on your own. I'm not going to get into the details. It's uh, it, it doesn't fly in 2020, but it was very my, funny in 1975. My favorite was the Exorcist sketch. Yes, that was very funny too, right? That was the bed is on my foot. <laughs> <laughs> I remember laughing at that like like nobody's business. You don't talk about my mama, he just jumps on her, yeah. yeah. Your mother so socks in hell. <laughs> so socks that smell. Right? Yeah, so socks that smell, that was it, right. Going back to the Chevy Chase job interview thing, those two did not like each other at all. Right. Yeah, they both rubbed each other the wrong way, so to speak. 
going forward on that, like I remember whenever they hired Andrew Dice Clay to play the MTV Video Music Awards, he came right. out. He, he came out and he he was Dice, you know, and he he yeah. said some you know pretty outlandish stuff, and MTV gave him a lifetime ban. Uh, <laughs> well, if yeah. you're gonna get a lifetime ban, that's the way you do it. Right? Yeah. Uh, go out with all guns firing, and mm. it wasn't long after the ban that he did that movie Ford Fairlane. Yes, and underrated gem of yeah. a movie for those underrated of you who haven't seen soundtrack it. too. And underrated your friend soundtrack. of mine, Billy Idol, has a song on that soundtrack called "Cradle of Love," and yeah. in the music video for "Cradle of Love," they inserted all sorts of like movie clips from Ford Fairlane, yep. none of which are have. Andrew Dice Clay in them, and he's the star of the film. Not even the yeah. star of the film. He's the, that film was his vehicle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's something else. <laughs> All right, moving on to the fourteenth, December fourteenth, nineteen sixty-one. Jimmy Dean's song, "Big Bad John." It's the first country song in the United States or anywhere else to get a gold record to sell more than a million copies. Oh wow! It's hard to believe that it took till 1961 for a country song to get a gold record. That seems unusual. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. Now, my experience with this song. Now, who did you say saying it? Jimmy Dean? Jimmy Dean. Not the guy related to Jimmy Dean Sausages. I was about to or say. James the, the, Dean. The, sausage the guy, guy that was yeah, in the yeah, movies. Yeah. No. Nope. So, <laughs> different one. Good songs, good sausages. Right. That would have been a great tagline. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the very first record I ever owned, this may or may not surprise you, was a record called Monster Mash by the Peter Pan Singers. They used to do a lot of children's records, but they also did mm -hmm. like kind of like novelty albums too. And the, so they just covered a bunch of novelty songs and other songs too. And the last song on the Monster Mash was a cover of this Big Bad John song, right? Right. And... For whatever reason, my copy of my Monster Mash record, that song skipped like all get out, like to the point where it was unlistenable. Yeah. And I never actually heard the song Big Bad John, the cover that I had on my record, or the Jimmy Dean song. It's like I was an adult. Like I knew the song existed and I knew bits and pieces of it because I would try to get the record to play. But yeah, I never I never heard the song until I was like probably, I don't know, twenty three. So what you're saying is you you only knew the song as John John John. It's hard to sing along with that. Yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not really a sing along song either. It's a story it's, song about a big guy who's trapped in a mine with a bunch of other minor guys and uh, holds up the mine so they can escape it and then he gets squishinated. Yeah, it's not really a toe tapper. It's um, it's a ballad. It follows the the stanzas right. of a ballad. Right. Um, now you said Jimmy Dean sang this song. Yes. My pea brain little mind maps Johnny Cash singing it. Because it's They have very similar vo vocal profiles. So yeah. that doesn't surprise me. And Johnny Cash does a ballad of John Henry the Steel Driving Man, which follows the same structure as this song. Okay. And as when I went back and I heard both of those, I was like, oh my God, that's almost the same. So easy, easy, easy to do that, to make okay. that. Yeah. Yeah. My brain wants to map Johnny Cash. And you could, you could hear Johnny Cash singing the song and in the in the big scale of things when you say jimmy dean now you don't think big bad john you think sausages right you think you, big bad cholesterol 
big bad cholesterol profile. Yeah, uh, you don't think cholesterol profiles when you think of John, Johnny Cash. I'm looking at Jimmy G now. This guy does not look cool, like, even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, he doesn't. He, he definitely looks like a product of 1960s, sort of what was becoming radio-friendly country. Yeah. I'm sure I walked by some piece of something of his when I was at the Country Music Hall of Fame a few years back. He is the same guy! I'm so excited about this. Jimmy Ray Dean was an American country music singer, television host, actor, and businessman. He was the creator of the Jimmy Dean sausage brand as well as <laughs> the spokesperson. Out of town. Yeah. Wow. Who knew that? Yeah. I didn't know that. It is the same Jimmy Dean. Ha. Wow. No wonder he gave up the music biz. He's probably making bank selling sausages. At the bottom of this colon lies a big, big tumor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You take two eggs and two pieces of toast, and you make sure they're sitting next to uh, the sausage with the most, Jimmy T. <laughs> All right, let's go on to the 15th. December 15th is uh, one of our fun holidays. It is day close to the cloggy arteries of my heart. It is Lemon Cupcake Day. Oh. Do you like lemon? No. No. No, I don't like lemon flavored anything. I don't like lemon drops. I don't like. No, I don't even know why. Oh. Why is lemon a flavor? You wash dishes with it. Leave it alone. Uh, <laughs> I like lemon cupcakes, and I like lemon-filled lemon squares, and I like lemon pie, and I like lemon cookies, and I like all those things. I I have my, only a few experiences with lemon confections in my life, and they're both horrible. So uh, I'll I'll give my first one, then you can tell me why you like lemon, and then I'll tell you my second one. All right, so okay. my first one was the very first time I ever attempted cooking anything. Uh, my, right. my friend Carolyn and I, she had this, like, cookbook that was, like, for kids, you know, because they had all the Peanuts characters yeah. and Charlie Brown and all that on it. Right, right. And, like, we kind of, like, coerced her mother into letting us make one of the recipes because this was the only stuff that she, you know, had the ingredients in the house. So we made these lemon squares following the recipe in this Charlie Brown cookbook, and they were atrocious. We, I don't know what we did wrong, but we did it wrong, and we did a lot of it. <laughs> and we're, like, trying to, like, eat this stuff that we just made and, like, make it believing it's good, but it wasn't good. Yeah. It was terrible. Can't do that. Yeah. I like lemon cupcakes, and I like lemon, like I said, I like lemon squares. I've made lemon cake before that's really tasty. Mm. Um, do you remember there was a, I don't know if you can even get them anymore, but there used to be Hostess cupcakes. Remember those? They were chocolate with the little swirls on the top. Uh, yes, I. Whenever the Twinkies went out right? of uh, out of uh, yeah. out of business, I was more upset about the cupcakes. No, I get those cupcakes all the time. Right. Well, they had they had lemon cupcakes too. While my dad, <laughs> the world's healthiest man, didn't like the lemon ones. Yep. Or it's really the chocolate ones. He loved the orange ones that they made in the last couple of years that they were making them. Okay. And in the last couple of years of my dad's life, he would like hobble down to. You know, the corner market. Yep. And he would get his things for the day. And it was a, a Tylenol or an Advil PM, yep. a five-hour energy, a sun-kissed orange soda, and orange cupcakes. And then he'd kind of hobble back to his apartment. He would chase down the Advil PM with the five-hour energy, thus negating the effects of both. Yeah, it's like a speedball. Yeah, speedball. And then he would eat his orange cupcakes and drink his orange soda. And he was oh told me that it was okay... And that it was orange, therefore it was healthy. Oh my God, you're lucky he only died. 
<laughs> Holy cow, that's well, terrible. He hasn't really decomposed yet, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that was a funny thing. I used to poke fun at him about that a little bit. The other thing that's my like aversion to lemon, like anything, is I like tea. And I at that time I would I would drink tea with uh, with cream. And I was over at my friend's house and I wanted to make tea. And he didn't have cream, he had milk. And he didn't have tea, he had lemon zingers. And lemon, which is acidic, does horrible things to milk whenever they mix together. And if you ever pour milk into a lemon zinger tea, it just curdles instantly and it's disgusting. So, yeah, lemon, I, yeah, we're not friends, guys. Yeah, oh well. I don't know that I've ever done that, but I, I like lemon in my, in my regular, like, pico black tea. But well, obviously, you don't put milk in it because you would be averted. No. <laughs> All right, moving on to December the 16th, 1951, the television show Dragnet, uh, which was basically the very first TV police procedural, makes its debut on NBC television. Now, the actual television show Dragnet didn't premiere until like January of the next year, but Mm -hmm. this episode of Dragnet, you know, the, the premiere of Dragnet happened on a television show called Chesterfield sound off time. Chesterfield being cigarettes. Oh. Because yes. cigarettes are awesome in 1951. <laughs> Brought to you by. <coughs> Brought to you by. And throat pull ups. Yeah. <laughs> this show's addictive. Yes. Yes, it is. I was going to say Dragnet ran for something like 13 or 14 years, right? Yeah, putting the drag in Dragnet. Well, I mean, I have another cigarette over here. Yeah, it ran for a long time, for sure. A very popular show. I think it actually, I think it was a radio program first, too, before that. It may very well have been, yeah. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure on that. Taken from the files of the Los Angeles Police Department. Yep, the, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Yes. Much later on. It was made into one of my favorite 1980s comedies with Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, yeah. Pep Strebeck. Yeah. That was his name in that movie. Yes. Christopher Plummer as the Satanist priest. Yes. Goat legs. And uh, Dabney Coleman as the Bob Guccione of the the movie, yeah. Yep. And and then Harry Morgan, who was on the television show of Dragnet, reprised his role in the movie. Yeah. He was like the police commissioner or something in that movie. And and uh, Dan Aykroyd's character was actually the uh, Jack Webb's character, right? Uh, and Jack Webb was dead by then, but he uh, right. had nothing to do with the sixteen packs of Chesterfields that he yeah, was paid yeah, every basically, week for that show. Yeah, eating the butts out of the ashtray, right? Yeah, <laughs> he didn't have a lug. He was starting to grow gills. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing. But uh, Dragnet, yeah, that um, like you said, it was on TV forever and paved the way for. Countless police procedurals, which made up you know almost the entirety of most of 1990s television and 1970s television too. There was a million thousand shows that were cop shows in the 70s yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right, cop shows and like uh, emergency. When you were tired of cop shows, you could always watch firefighter shows, right? <laughs> well, yeah, they tried. They tried to do like the young person shows. There was the Mod Squad. There was yep. SWAT. Oh, there yeah. was. Remember that I could I wasn't allowed to stay up long enough to watch SWAT, but I remember the theme song was a, was was like astonishingly good. Right, that's how much I remember. But at the but the best thing that came out of Dragnet, I think, was Police Squad. Oh right, 
which was a dead-on parody which of Dragnet. Now, was Police Squad before or after Airplane? It was after Airplane. Okay. And they tried to make a series that had the same kind of humor, but people couldn't understand that the show had like 7,000 jokes in a 30-minute period. Right. So NBC canceled it after like three episodes or something. Sure. All right, moving on to the 17th. December 17th, 1989. Hey, speaking of TV, uh, 1989, The Simpsons, created by Matt Groening, premieres on Fox TV as a full half-an-hour animated series with the episode Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. And I will never, ever forget that episode. They have way more than three or four episodes, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. It's still going. Still going strong. I will never forget that episode uh, because of you, Mr. Bill. Yep. After that one aired... The week after, it aired on a Sunday night, so it must have been like a Thursday the following week. Right. At the North Dartmouth Mall, we were talking about The Simpsons, and you were doing Marge Bouvier's sister's voice, (laughs) Selma, and reenacting the scene where they call to talk to Marge on the phone and get Homer, and he's trying to figure out who's calling. Can I speak to Marge, please? (laughs) Who is this? This is her sister, isn't it? (laughs) Is Marge there? (laughs) you just kept saying, it's Marge there. Marge, please. Talk to Marge, please. Who can I and say I remember, is calling? Peals of laughter in the mall for a solid 30 minutes. Yeah, uh, well. Because of that. Here's something you may not know about that day. I almost got my ass kicked because of that. Because Did you really? Yeah, my friend John, uh, we were kind of at the outs at the time. It's something to do with his girlfriend. And she had told him that she had walked by me at the mall and then me and my friend were like laughing at her. <laughs> and he's like, he calls me up. And he's like, were you laughing at Lisa in the mall today? I'm like, no, I was laughing in the mall today. We were laughing about the Simpsons. It had nothing to do with Lisa. Unless the last name Simpson by some strange coincidence. Right. She wasn't even the funny one on the Simpsons. <laughs> and he's like, are you calling her a liar? And I'm like, well, not in so many words, but yeah, and yeah, he was bullshit with me. So, yep, Simpsons still going strong today. I go back and revisit it every once in a great while, and I'm surprised at how funny it still is. I haven't watched any of the recent episodes for the last few years just because I don't have TV. It's not like I have an aversion to the show or anything. I think you could pick it up um, on Hulu if you if you got curious. If I re- yeah, if I really was thinking about doing it, yeah. Again, I some of the funniest things I've ever seen on TV were in the first like ten seasons of that of that program. So apparently, Mister Jeff, we we doubled up somewhere. Oh, so why don't you take the eighteenth as well? All right, uh, December eighteenth. 1898, the very first automobile speed record is set at a staggering 63 kilometers per hour. What's that? That's 39 miles per hour for those of us here in the United States. 39 miles an hour, huh? But yeah, by a guy named, uh, are you ready? I'm ready. Count Gaston de Chazaloup Lubat of beautiful Paris, France. I was to say, sounds French. He is definitely the Frenchiest man that ever French to French. Yep. He, couldn't, he couldn't be more French if his name was Baguette Beret. Yep. Just to be a, a wise guy, 80 years later, 81 years later, the sound barrier, the land speed sound barrier, the sound barrier was broken on land for the first time by a guy named Stanley Barrett when he drove 739.6 miles per hour. So he did 700 more miles per hour than Count Gaston Le Chasseloup Lubat of beautiful Paris, France. Wow. And he did it in a thing called the Budweiser Rocket. Oh, I remember seeing video of that. Yeah, the, they did it like out in Arizona because I mean they're not about yeah. to do it on like a highway. Like, yo, no, no, now nah, they do that like at the Bonneville Salt Flats or something, right. where 
I don't know where it's good to go die at 800 miles an hour, some stupid thing like that. But, so it's, that used to be those, those used to be the fun things that were on TV when I was a kid. Right. Like on Saturday afternoon, it would be, oh, the basketball game's over early. What are they going to show now? Oh, it's some crazy ass daredevil. Right. What's he going to do? There was, I, I can't so. remember that guy, but like, uh, I don't remember his name. I know there's a song about him. Uh, the guy that broke the water speed record of over 300 miles an hour on water. And yes. as he was coming back down, you know, decelerating for 300, the tip of the boat went up and the wind caught it. It just flipped over on top of him. And it took, they didn't find even pieces of him for the longest time. They, they couldn't even find like a fingernail. It just like yeah. disintegrated him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always like to think about that as happening to him as, uh, as he, he sort of transitioned into a, a parallel universe. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, where am I? <clears throat> You know, right. <laughs> I was just in a boat going 300 some odd miles an hour. And now I'm now I'm standing here looking at erotic cakes. It, it hit him so hard. It created a new element. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So going on to the celebrity birthdays, December the 12th, 1923, Jeff. 1923. Yep. American game show host Bob Barker, the host of The Price is Right for most of our lives. A feature of my childhood for certain. Yep. Anybody in our age group, anytime they stayed home from school sick, there it is. Noon, noon o'clock, you'd be watching The Price is Right. Right. Uh, right, right. America's Game Show. Yep. Watching people guess the price of Mentos is $8.27. Yeah, I always thought that everything was really pricey in California. <laughs> right. Juicy Fruit Gum. Yep. It's actual price, $6.43. Really? Uh, Bob Barker had a right great away. sense of humor about himself. I mean, obviously, uh, people are going to remember him and his uh, cameo role in Happy Gilmore with Adam Sandler. Yes, Argu- I enjoyed watching Adam Sandler get beaten up by Bob Barker. Yep. That Arguably movie. the funniest part of that, about that movie. He actually did a guest appearance in the WWE one time. And they did like... Did he really? Yeah. They did like a, a parody of The Price is Right with the wrestlers. And it was really, really, really funny because Bob Barker just... You know, he's, he's just a, a cool guy, I guess, you know. He's just this guy, you know. Hey. Moving on. December 13th, 1967, American actor and comedian and musician Jamie Foxx. Kind of got his start in, at least in being a public figure on the a sketch comedy show In Living Color, which was one of the very first programs on Fox TV. Yep, I remember that. And parlayed that into a series of increasingly... Uh, dramatic and well-made, like high-profile films, like the biopic of Ray Charles called Ray. Mm-hmm. He was the star of Django Unchained, directed by Quentin Tarantino. He's just a fantastic actor. Yeah. Far exceeded the work that he was given on in Living Color, but definitely showed his his talents in that show too. Yeah, I I really like him as a dramatic actor. He was like you said to me earlier. He was always kind of like the straight guy on yeah. in Living Color. But another uh, alumni of In Living Color, Damon Wayans, who comedically I don't find him very funny, but as a dramatic actor, like he was in Requiem for a Dream and he's fantastic. Right. And Jim Carrey makes a great dramatic actor as well. That show, In Living Color, launched a lot of um, great dramatic actors. Eh, we'll We'll draw a hard line in the sand on Jennifer Lopez, though. <laughs> I did the greatest acting career, but boy, she had a music career to die for. Yeah. 
as the acting goes, the, 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 the line is drawn on, on Fly Girl Jennifer Lopez. All right, moving on to the 14th of 1911, Jeff. Um, mm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna assume this guy is no longer with us. Probably not. A musician by the name of a musician and comedian by the name of Spike Jones. Spike Jones. Oh, I know him. Yeah, he's, he's pretty much the godfather of novelty music. Yeah, for Der Fuhrer's face, right? That was him. Yeah, I uh, think probably best known. I think if anyone's gonna know uh, one of his novelty songs, because I mean he's got a, a, a huge catalog. But I think the one mm-hmm. that people are going to best know him for is All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. That's right. Yeah, that was him, too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that song still gets play on a lot of Christmas playlists that I that I listen that, to that this I time make of year. myself, yeah. That I make myself, yes. Yeah, he's obviously the, you know, the inspiration for people like Weird Al Yankovic and yes. a novelty musician from Boston, hometown guy Tom Lehrer. So, yeah, Spike Jones is the guy who got that ball rolling. He used to show up on TV, too, on, to, on like, the 1950s and early 1960s talk shows yeah. and do stuff. He inspired even, like, if you see Frank Zappa's very first TV appearance where he plays a bicycle. Yes. That's very, very much a Spike Jones skit. Oh, really? That, that was on Ed Sullivan, a teenager. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was on Ed Sullivan. Yeah, wow. And that's, that's pretty much a Spike Jones bit right there. Oh, wow. So. His, his influence was not lost on everybody who made unusual music. Yeah, and then Happy think about how many Spike people Jones. Frank Zappa turns around and inspires. So, yeah. Right. I mean, even though he's long gone, they're still putting out compilation albums as recently as 2014. Mm. I know he used to show up on a bunch of the Dr. Demento CDs that I had. All right, moving on. December 15th, 37. <laughs> See that? We're going way back. Fiddler and fire enthusiast Nero. Oh, not the last of the Caesars, but one of the more colorful ones. Well, yeah, he was fire colored. <laughs> <laughs> Nero fiddled while Rome burned. One of the the guys who gets held up as a not the sort of dude you want to put in charge. Right. Whenever you're talking politics with your friends. So, yeah, he was the one that was orchestrating the famous feeding the Christians to the lions for, yeah, for your entertainment purposes. Well, look, I, you know what? I played violin a lot as a kid, mm-hmm. and it's hard. Yeah. So you want to find something easier to occupy your time. Maybe that's the way you do it yeah. if you're the fifth emperor of Rome. Right. The, a lot of biblical scholars seem to think that the number of the beast uh, was pointing to Nero Caesar just because of the atrocities he was doing against Christians at that time. Well, it didn't do him that much good. He didn't live super long. Like 31 years, and then somebody was like, yeah, we've had enough of this guy. Yeah, the Caligula and, was like, hold and, my beer. And like many Roman emperors, when they decide, yeah, this guy's, uh, he's leading us down the wrong path, the path of fire, and the devil went down to Georgia, <laughs> and taken out by his own Senate. All right. Uh, moving on to the 16th, we have December the 16th, 1770, not quite as old as Nero, but not as young as uh, Spike Jones, uh, Ludwig von Beethoven. Oh. The lovely, lovely Ludwig van. Yeah. As they say. As they say from one of my uh, favorite books. Favorite musician of Alex DeLarge and Bill S. Preston Esquire. <laughs> We're so far removed from the 1770s in popular music, but Beethoven seems to have a, a longevity that some of his contemporaries don't. And it may be just because it's used in things like A Clockwork Orange. Countdown with Keith, but, Ober- Keith Oberman. But 
like if you've heard the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, like da 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 da, da 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 da, then you've heard Beethoven. If you've heard Ode to Joy or the Ninth Symphony, you've heard Beethoven. If you've heard Moonlight Sonata, you've heard Beethoven. And like all of these things are. And let's, I mean, let's also not forget that you know we all grew up watching uh, Charlie Brown cartoons. And yes. Schroeder, the piano playing character, had a bust of Beethoven uh, sitting on his little toy piano. He did, and he when he played "Ode to Joy" in uh, in Charlie Brown Christmas, and Lucy's like, "No, play a Christmas song," and he goes like, "Dink, dink, 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 dink," to play the beginning of Jingle Bells, and she yells, "That's it!" All right, and the seventeenth, December seventeenth, nineteen thirty-six. Now we don't generally talk too much about Pope's show. No. But December 17th, 1936 is the birthday of current Pope, Pope Francis, who comes from, I think, Argentina, was promoted up from Argentina when the previous Pope retired, and is the first Jesuit Pope, and uh, has uh, defied- Fill in that blank for me. What, is, what does that mean, a Jesuit? Oh my God, you're the one who went to Catholic school. Don't you know that? No. We know. All right. We know about Catholics. He comes from the, what? He comes from the Jesuit, the Jesuit order of monks, which is okay. a, an order that tends to focus on like not living in poverty, but they don't. They're not ostentatious. Okay. They spend a lot of their time doing education. Okay? Oh, okay. See, whenever I was in Catholic S- school, the pastor, or the guy that ran the the whole curriculum and all that, was a guy named Father Moore, and he definitely did not take a vow of poverty. That guy came from money and enjoyed it. I'm sure. He's like, Father, is that a Rolex? Why, yes. <laughs> How'd you get that then? Mm-hmm, would you like to know? No, uh, Pope Francis, the reason I, I sort of picked him for today is he's an interesting guy. Yep. Because he comes from the Jesuit side, he sort of shook things up in, in the Vatican when he was appointed. Yes. Or was chosen. As, and as far as popes go, yeah, he's very iconoclastic, yeah. Especially after the previous pope there, Cardinal Ratzinger. <laughs> Emperor Palpatine, yeah. Emperor Palpatine, yes, he still looks like uh, Burgermeister Meisterburger, <laughs> since we're going to throw every Christmas movie in here, yeah. we can. But like Pope Francis would do stuff like sneak out of the Vatican dressed as a priest and go give food out in a homeless shelter. Right. And did that a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. Has been way more forward-looking than previous popes, way less conservative than previous popes, to do things like uh, discuss atheism and discuss homosexuality and other things that the Catholic Church generally frowns on. Yeah. But he has taken a much more sort of open and, and understanding approach to those things. So, you know, like or dislike the Catholic Church all you want, but Pope Francis is a pretty good guy. Uh, so he was the, he's the first pope that is not of European descent since 741. That's funny. Um, and also, uh, I remember whenever he made one of his really, you know, iconoclastic decisions or however you want to say it. Some I remember somebody posting on the internet, they were like, he's not a real Catholic. And somebody was like, he's the Pope! You can't get any more Catholic than he's the Pope! <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> you literally can't get any more Catholic than that. No, he's the, the most Catholic man in the world. He's like, <laughs> he's like when they say the Catholic, that's the guy they mean. Right. I heard he does Mass at the Sestin Chapel. Hey, there's a throwback. <laughs> <laughs> and then wrapping up, wrapping up our birthdays, young Jeff, on December the 18th in 1778. Boy, a bunch of old timers this time around, huh? Born December 18th, 1778, a man by the name of Joseph Grimaldi. He was an English clown, and he was the first person to kind of like 
do the clown makeup and clown suit that we kind of know oh. as standard clown attire today. Yeah, that we associate with clowning. Yeah, yeah, with the white face and the uh, you know the stripes on the face to accent the cheeks and the eyes and stuff like that. Yep. Terrifying children. Yeah. Since. Well, not so much. I mean, clowns weren't considered terrifying. Like the whole chlorophobia thing wasn't really. I'm probably saying that word wrong. Um, but the whole fear of clowns wasn't really a thing in society mm-hmm. until uh, Stephen King's It was on television. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden, everybody, ah, I'm afraid of clowns. And there, in the clown world, there is a term, Joey, uh, which is you know another word for clown, uh, and also baby kangaroo. But the word Joey being synonymous with the word clown actually comes from him, Joseph Grimaldi. So yeah, oh well, that's cool. He's the big daddy of uh, of clowns the world over. I'll have to go hunt around and see if I can find like a painting of him or something to see what that first makeup looked like. Yeah, well, I'm looking at it now. It's, he's holding a bottle of wine and a, and a glass. So I already like him. Yep, I like him already. You know what I don't like though? The worst song ever. Jeff, I don't even know where to begin. I don't. I, I, do. I don't know where to start. You want to? You want to talk about this? Because I'm. <laughs> I'm mad. I'm mad today. Yeah. So. It's hard when a band that that you like, that you've been a fan of, and have been championing for a couple of years at least. Yeah, I mean, at that point, right? We're talking in general now, not specific to this band yet. Yeah, gets just enough fame that the record company gets involved in trying to make them super famous. Right. And to make them super famous, they push away everything that makes that band interesting. To try and make them appeal to the vastest number of people. Right. And it, sometimes it, it sort of works. I've never seen an example of where that strategy has held for more than one record. We are talking today about the perpetual American underachieving rockers cheap trick. Yes. Who had a rocky road to relative fame and like their first couple of records didn't chart. It was only when they were big in Japan that they were able to to chart here, and it was three years after they toured Japan that a live record called Live at Budokan was released and finally started to put them on the map. Yeah. Everybody knows I Want You to Want Me, and the song that they always play on the radio is the live version from Budokan. I've listened right. to the like studio recording of it, and it's it sounds weird yeah. because the live version is it's- so good. So it's totally not as good, yeah. yeah. So before we get into talking about Cheap Trick's career, we'll get a fast forward to 1987, I believe, with an album called The Lap of yes. Luxury. This Ugh, gave yeah. Cheap Trick their one and only number one hit, a song called The Flame, which they did not write. It was given to them by the record company, and it sucks on ice. Here's the clip. song was written by two guys, two guys, Bob Mitchell, I don't know anything about, and, and Nick Graham, who hadn't written anything that sold until he wrote The Flame, but he was an employee, I guess, of the record company as a songwriter, mm-hmm. and he'd been in some bands in the 70s, none of which had had, had any singles that charted. Right. 
But anyway, somehow they pulled together enough magic to write the most syrupy, swooshy song. Funny about this, whenever I, you know, I went back and I listened to the album today, and I'm yep. listening to the song The Flame, and the thing that came to my mind was... I limit the clips to only 30 seconds for copyright reasons and also to I don't want to bore the audience. Right. But to pick out Yeah, this song especially. To pick out 30 seconds of this song that sucks more than any other 30 seconds is laborious, let me tell you, because the song is so slow and like that whole cuz I I went with the verse, I didn't even get to the chorus. And the chorus is not a step up. It's just... Nope. And the worst part about all this is this doesn't sound like Cheap Trick. This doesn't sound like any no. other Cheap Trick song. Even on their previous record where they had a ballad called If You Want My Love, You Got It yep. on One on One, which Rick Nielsen and Robin Zander wrote. Yep. It's similar in structure, but way more dynamic because it sounds like the band actually wanted to play it. Yes, and the flame sounds like the band really wishes they were not yep. playing it. That album, One on One, they had a different bass player on that album. So anytime you see a Cheap Trick album, you always see Robin Zander and then Tom Peterson standing next to each other. Like almost every single one of their albums have that. Right. And then the One on One album, they all appeared on the on the album cover. Right. But they had a different bass player on that album. Right. Um, and yeah, then John Brandt. Yeah. What was his name? John, John Brandt. John Brandt. Yeah. And then like whenever lap of luxury came out a couple of years later, everybody made a big deal that the original bass player was going to be on it. And I listened to that whole album today. That album does not sound like cheap trick at all. None of the songs on there. Are I very wouldn't good. blame the, the original bass player for that either. I'm just, you know, yeah. d- don't make the inference that we're saying that. It's just, this was a record company making them put out a surprisingly crappy record. I think the record companies brought the bass player back too. It's like, we got to put him on the album cover. It doesn't look right without him. And then the second single off of that album was a song called Don't Be Cruel. Don't who, Be Cruel. It was written by, by our, our good friend Elvis Presley. Well, not written, but originally recorded by our good friend Elvis Presley. Can you just imagine being the guys in Cheap Trick with the record company saying, all right, we got a plan for this album. The two singles we're going to release are songs you didn't write because basically we don't like you. We don't like you. Well, I think most of the songs on this record are songs that they didn't write, (laughs) which is not surprising. And Don't Be Cruel, it it was a toss-up for us there, dear audience, to whether we were going to pick The Flame or we were going to pick Don't Be Cruel because both songs are dreadful. Don't Be Cruel is, I think, musically is worse because it's irritating. The Flame is just boring. Yeah. But it's boring in a way that makes you think like, oh, this band had so much potential in it and then it just disappeared because this record didn't do him any favors and their subsequent records didn't do him any favors either. I remember my friend Al went to see... I don't remember what concert he saw, but Cheap Trick was the opening act. You know, we see him a couple of days after the concert. And I was like, oh, you know, how was uh, how was Cheap Trick? He goes, oh, my God, they were so horrible. They played that song there, The Flame. He goes, and then later on, the guy comes on. They're doing like an Elvis Presley song. What the hell? Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Yep. It was not a good time for Cheap Trick at that point. Well, the thing is, like, you know, both you and I like Cheap Trick, so we overlook a lot of flaws. Like, their previous records are 
uh, one-on-one's a good record, but there's some dogs on that thing. Yeah. They did the terrible theme song to that stupid movie, Up the Creek. Do you remember that? Yes, that was but I like that song. So, it was in and out of theater so fast that my popcorn didn't even get cold. Yeah. You know, I think they're perpetually a band that opens for other bands. You're not going to go wrong picking up a Cheap Trick Greatest Hits album. That's for sure. Uh, just, no. Yeah, just skip over the flame. Like we were saying about Spike Jones, where not everybody is familiar or knows who Spike Jones is, but they definitely know who he influenced. Right. You know, At, or, you know, it's the, and the same thing can be said with Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick has influenced a lot, a lot, a lot of bands. Yes. And actually, my friend Tom just went see them over the summer, and Rick Nielsen was sick, so they actually had to have somebody else play guitar that night. Oh. And then Bunny Carlos, he got thrown out of the band years ago. Right. Uh, so they had Robert Zander and that bass player that's on all their album covers. So I had made mention <laughs> about that the, the album One on One, which is a fantastic record. But I had made yes. mention about that. I was like, the only person on that album that you saw was Robin Zander. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, if you really want to go back and, and listen to them and, and hear their influence from the time, go listen to One on One and the song She's Tight, and then go listen to Poison's Talk Dirty to Me. Oh, yeah. It's pretty much the same it's song. It's the same riff. It's a, a ver- very song. much the same song. All right, so before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Young Jeff, before this country had a national anthem, we had a lot of placeholders for the national anthem. Mm. Probably the most well-known is my country, Tis of Thee, but the most frequent placeholder was another song, and that song is now in use for, got repurposed for something else. So what was the original placeholder national anthem for the United States of America, and what are they using it for these days? Like I said, I don't know the name of the piece of music, but I'm going to say it's the one that was repurposed as the theme song to Monty Python's Flying Circus. That is an excellent guess, and it is wrong. Oh, yep. the, so much for that. The name of that song is... Some, Wait, some, was it Thunderstruck by ACDC? It's Thunderstruck by ACDC. <laughs> Perfect anthem for the United States. The name of that... Yeah, because it's written by Australians. Um, <laughs> the the song that you're talking about, Monty Python, that one's called like Liberty Bell or something. Something know. along those lines. I'll take your word for but, it. But the song that was a... A national anthem placeholder at one point in time is called Hail Columbia, which is a little misplaced seeing as we're not in Columbia, but we do have a district of Columbia. So Hail Columbia is the song, and it is now being used as the entrance for the vice president of the United States. So, uh, So Hail to the Chief is the song that the president walks in to. And the vice president comes into Hail Columbia, which was at one point a placeholder national anthem. For the national anthem. Well, that's good to know. Yep. Well, in case I'm ever on Jeopardy, I'm still going to get that one wrong. But uh-huh. that's okay. All right. But that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme song. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, if everybody listens to the show, gets one more person to listen, we'll double our listenership. Mm.